Welcome back, everyone, to the Homeric Epic Podcast. I'm glad that you've chosen to join me for the second episode of this journey, and I hope you're as excited as I am. Quick recap of the last episode, we explored the origins of the Homeric Epic poems, how they were created in a long oral tradition, and eventually transcribed and edited before reaching us today. Oral composition is a key point to understanding the poems, and I'll bring up points that highlight this fact throughout the podcast. Next, we discuss the poetics of these works, since that is a large part of their creation and beauty. The poems are written in dactylic hexameter, which generally doesn't sound very good in English, so most translations are in free verse. Much of the poetry of word order and auditory effects are lost upon their translation, but not all of them. Translators still attempt to turn poetry into poetry, so the translations are beautiful in their own right. Regardless, I will dig into the Greek on your behalf to find some beautiful poetic moments for us to admire. Finally, we touched on the mythological background of the war, which stretches very far back in the mythological timeline. The traditional start to the war, the Judgment of Paris, frames the whole story in a sort of tragic, ironic context, whereby the squabbles of goddesses are the cause of immense suffering for the Greeks and Trojans. The lesser-known origin to the war, where Zeus wishes to reduce the burden of man upon the deep-bosomed earth, is an interesting place to start the narrative from. And I believe meshes better with the plan of Zeus that's mentioned throughout the Iliad. Before we begin dissecting the text, let me quickly review Book 1 of the Iliad for you. The Iliad starts with an invocation of the muse by the poet. The poet then tells us about the refused ransom of Chryseis to her father Chryses from the Greek leader Agamemnon. After this harsh refusal, Chryses prays to Apollo and causes a plague to fall upon the Achaean camp. Achilles calls a council to discuss the cause of the plague and acts the advice of the seer Calchas. Calchas, who knows the cause of the plague, is fearful of divulging Agamemnon as its cause. Achilles backs him up, and Agamemnon is furious at Calchas. If he has to give Chryseis away, then he should be fairly compensated. But the Greeks are very aware that you cannot make plunder appear out of thin air. So he settles on taking it from one of his subordinates. And this rubs Achilles the wrong way, to say the least, and the two butt heads. Agamemnon announces he will take Achilles' prize, Briseis, in lieu of his own. Achilles, moments away from killing Agamemnon, is interrupted by the goddess Athena, who tells him to wait. The two exchange insults until wise Nestor attempts to reconcile them. But alas, the damage is done, and the council is adjourned. Achilles travels to his camp, while Agamemnon sends heralds to fetch Briseis. After this is done, Achilles prays to his mother, Thetis, and he explains the situation. Thetis, feeling for her son, vows to speak with Zeus on his behalf to grant him honor. The two part, and the action switches to Odysseus as he delivers Chryseis to her father. After the proper sacrifices, they return, having satisfied Apollo's wrath. We then turn to Mount Olympus, where Thetis attempts to supplicate Zeus and persuade him to give honor to Achilles among the Greeks. He agrees, and returns to commune with the other gods. Hera rebukes him for cavorting with Thetis, and Zeus threatens to chain her up. The whole party is nearly ruined until Hephaestus saves the day. The book ends with the gods having a joyous feast. I do encourage you to read along with the podcast, as I will be diving into the nitty-gritty of the text. But hopefully, the recap has primed you for what's to come. In any case, let's dive right in. Book 1 of the Iliad is extremely important, both in terms of plot and in terms of characterization. The story begins with a literary device called a prome. I like to think of the prome it's the pre-poem, as it prefaces the work of poetry that we're about to hear slash read. In the prome for the Iliad, the bard invokes a muse for inspiration. 
These are not his words, he will be telling us, but the words of a divine omniscient being, sort of providing a mystical power to the story, and also maybe exempting him from saying anything considered blasphemous. But this is also very interesting from a storytelling perspective. In effect, what we have in the Iliad is two narrators, a poet who gives short expositions sprinkled throughout the poem and is limited in scope, and the muse narrator who provides us with a first-hand semi-omniscient account of the story. The two play off each other in ironic fashion, and their viewpoints on the events of the story reflect and contrast the views expressed by the characters. The first word of the entire poem is manus, which appears in the singular accusative form manus, meaning is the object of the sentence, and signifies the main theme and the driving force behind the entire Iliad. Manin is tricky to translate, but I believe is best captured by the English word rage. It has some cultural dimensions as well, which are much more relevant to the ancient Greek and difficult to grasp in modern diction. Within the prome, Homer tells us what the story is about in the first seven lines. Rage, sing of it, goddess, the destructive rage of Peleus' son Achilles, which heaped countless pains upon the Achaeans, and hurled forth many mighty souls of heroes down to Hades, and made their bodies spoils for dogs and birds, and the will of Zeus was moving towards its end. From the time when those two first stood apart in strife, Agamemnon, lord of men, and godlike Achilles. Homer says, hey, we're talking about the rage of Achilles, who killed countless people, Zeus caused it with his plan, and it originated from the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon. There's no fat, there's no filler, we dive right in. But what I find interesting about this is that if we had no prior knowledge of the Iliad, we would expect this Achilles character to be directing his rage against this group of people called the Achaeans, which, of this is what happens, is not the whole story. This method of starting a story in the middle is called in media res, which is Latin for in the middle of things. Many other famous tales start like this, including the Odyssey, Dante's Divine Comedy, and Vince Gilligan's Breaking Bad. It gives the reader a sense of mystery. Much like real life, when we just stumble onto a scenario, we first have to orient ourselves. Of course, we're not super used to starting stories like this, without explanation or an introduction. But remember, the people who were hearing this story live knew it by heart. It was never a question of if Troy would fall, or if Odysseus would make it home. They wanted to be held in the ironic tension of the story. Back to the text. The Greek word used here, which we translate as countless, is murios, and is the origin of our word myriad. This word is the ancient Greek equivalent to saying a gajillion. It didn't mean so much a number, as much as a value so high as to be inconceivable. Thus, this war will cause death on an imaginable scale. With the current introduction to the story, the poet must bring us to the cause of it all, the quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles. And note that this is the beginning of the Iliad according to the poet, but it will be revealed by other characters that this might not be the case. Chryses, the priest of Apollo, arrives at the Greek camp bearing gold and other valuable items, and addresses Agamemnon, leading to release his daughter Chryseis, who is taken as a war prize and given to Agamemnon. The very first scene we have of Agamemnon is him harshly refusing the distressed father, despite the army being in great favor of taking the ransom in exchange for the single girl. Agamemnon says, The girl I will not release. Sooner will old age come upon her in our house, in Argos, far from her homeland, pacing back and forth by the loom and sharing my bed. Certainly a savage thing to say to a father 
who has brought such large gifts in exchange for his child. But to make this rebuke just that much more despicable, though, Homer dazzles us with some wordplay. The Greek word for loom, which is histon, is also the word for mast, or generally, anything that sits upright. The use of this word here then could be viewed as a double entendre of Chryseis pacing Agamemnon's loom while sharing his bed. Very sick stuff, but good characterization. The quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles is set up with three scenes before they inevitably clash heads. The poet briefly darts from Chryseis' attempted ransom to him pleading to Apollo along the shore, the god descending from the mountains bringing a plague with his deadly arrows. Thus, the stage is quickly set and ready for the characters. And this is actually one of Homer's greatest skills, making the reader feel as if they are watching the poem unfold before their eyes. Aristotle comments on this in his Poetics. Quote, Homer is the only poet who understands the narrator's place in a poem. He tells as little as possible in his own person. Other poets keep themselves on the scene throughout and briefly and seldom represent the action as taking place. Homer, with little prelude, leaves the stage to his men and women, all with characters of their own. End quote. Like I said, this is one of Homer's greatest strengths and is part of the general qualities of rapidity and directness that the poems have. Thus, when we are presented with Agamemnon, he wastes no time in characterizing himself, directly opposing the will of the army to ransom Chryseis, which prejudices us against him. On the other hand, the first time we encounter Achilles is as he is calling the assembly to address the plague upon the army. Concerned as he is for the sake of the men, we see him in a much different and favorable light than Agamemnon. This general altruistic concern for the army also tees up the anger that Achilles is about to feel even more. Once we finally enter into the quarrel scene, our sympathies lie firmly with Achilles and against Agamemnon. Besides the functional importance of this scene, it also serves to deeply stain Achilles' character into our minds. This is critical, as we won't hear from him again directly until Book 9, so the impression he makes must be clear and long-lasting. Achilles calls the assembly and asks Calchas to tell him about the cause of the plague. Calchas, justifiably afraid of blaming Agamemnon for it, is hesitant. But Achilles assures him that no one will harm him as long as Achilles still lives even if he were to name, say, Agamemnon, the lord of men. We can see where this is going. Achilles is backing himself into a corner, and already starting to set himself in opposition to Agamemnon. Calchas explains Apollo's manus over the refused ransom of Chryseis, and now note the use of manus here. It is a word used to describe divine wrath. Calchas continues, stating the only way to fix it is to return Chryseis to her father, and Agamemnon is enraged. He demands that his prize be replaced, since it is clearly taken from him against his will, depriving him of that honor. Achilles then pipes up, and we can sense his growing dissatisfaction. What is interesting about Achilles' reply to Agamemnon here, though, is that it is unnecessary. Agamemnon did not call on Achilles specifically, and Achilles could have at least waited to hear what the others in the room might say. Perhaps wise Nestor or wily Odysseus could have devised a plan to ensure Agamemnon saves face? But no. Achilles waits for no man to speak for him. Achilles replies, and the fuse is lit. He says replacing Agamemnon's prize is impossible, as everything has already been divvied up. And he laces his retort with the appropriate insult for Agamemnon, greediest of all men. This mention of all the plunder already having been divided is important. The social world of the Iliad is a zero-sum game. Heroes compete with one another for Geras, which are the spoils of war, slaves, livestock, other valuable items, 
and the amount of geros you possess is how much honor you have, quite literally. In the Homeric epics, there are only two ways to get geros. You can be gifted items of honor from friends, or you can take it from somebody else. Heroes claim the armor of the foes they slay, they get Garros when sacking a city or ransoming a hostage, and they lose Garros only when they are killed and it is forcibly taken from them. Thus, the mere mention by Agamemnon of them providing a new prize for him implies that it must come from somebody else, dishonoring them through the action of taking it. Achilles notes this as if to say, whoa, whoa, you're not suggesting what I think you're suggesting, right? But Agamemnon is. He extinguishes Achilles' attempt at paying him back later for the girl upon the sack of Troy, and in a cool, careless tone demands that he have a prize, even if he has to take it from someone else. Agamemnon's mistake here perhaps is mentioning Achilles at all. He could have ended it there, but to flex his authority, he makes a list of people who he could potentially take it from. Achilles, Ajax, Odysseus, all leaders of their own respective forces and brave warriors. Had he not mentioned any names, who knows, Achilles might have felt his honor less threatened if the possibility of losing his Garros was not explicitly mentioned. But of course, the poem must march on. Agamemnon changes the subject, and calmly mentions that they should have Perseus on her way back to her father, as if the matter is at all settled. This assumption of compliance on the part of Agamemnon is the final tipping point for Achilles. His speech here reveals the grievances he has with the absolute rule of Agamemnon, and can be summed up as, I do most of the heavy lifting in battle, but don't get compensated for it. We also get the sense that this has been a long-simmering feeling that Achilles has, as if this is not the first time Agamemnon has treated him less than what he feels he deserves. What is interesting here is the clear self-awareness that Achilles possesses of himself. He states, quote, It was not on account of the Trojan spearmen that I came here to fight, since they have done no wrong to me. End quote. Achilles is at Troy primarily out of obligation, but besides that, he is here to increase his kleos through the working of great deeds. Kleos is the Greek word that translates roughly as everlasting fame, glory, or renown, but more literally translates as that which is heard. Achilles' whole deal is that he wants to be remembered forever after he dies. But what he is expressly not here for is to rescue Helen or to enrich Agamemnon further. Thus, this command from Agamemnon to hand over his prize is directly counter to Achilles' entire being. If Achilles does great things to increase his glory, but that glory can be easily taken away, especially by someone he views as less of a warrior than himself, then what's the point of it all? What is the point of the way Achilles views the world? With Achilles' threat of returning home, Agamemnon has found the replacement for his prize. His generally dismissive attitude towards Achilles' departure bestows an air of confidence on the great king. This confidence is in actuality hubris, a central theme to the Iliad. Hubris is an ancient Greek word, meaning excessive pride or defiance towards the gods, which never goes unpunished. It often refers to when mortals try to act like gods, but can also refer when mortals try to act like their betters. The Greeks took this concept very seriously. So much so that it was still a relevant social concept, even in the time of Alexander the Great. But with this final straw, we have reached our quarrel. Achilles' rage has begun. The appearance of the goddess Athena to check Achilles' rage is key to preserving the impression that the poet has created for Achilles since the beginning of the poem. His rage is destructive. It causes death. 
So the reader sees the slaying of Agamemnon as a real possibility. But obviously he cannot just slay Agamemnon right now. But then again, not doing so would be contradictive to Achilles' character as a proud, hot-headed warrior. We already know that the taking of Briseis is the cause of the wrath, so she will be taken. How then can Homer reconcile Achilles' character with the submissive act of losing his prize? Divine intervention will have to do. By having Athena check Achilles' wrath, he is justified in his anger and his characterization is preserved at the same time. I like to imagine how this scene would play out in real life. Agamemnon announces that he will take Achilles' prize. Achilles' hand flies to the hilt of his sword, but he begins drawing it. And after a slight pause, he shoves it back in the scabbard and begins to insult Agamemnon again. It's not stated if the other characters saw him reach for his sword, but to me it seems that as soon as he touched it, the goddess began her conversation with him, and so saved him the confusing task of explaining why his hand was at his sword while they were assembled in council. Achilles' speech here is fantastic. I love the insults he uses as well. Somehow it translates exactly right over 2,000 years later. Greek word for this is oinobares, which is a compound of oino, meaning wine, and bares, meaning heavy. He's calling Agamemnon a drunkard, and it sounds fantastic. This speech is where Achilles steals his resolve. He wishes to demonstrate how important he is in this sort of backwards way, by not doing anything, and waiting for enough people to die that Agamemnon fears for his life and comes to regret dishonoring him. Achilles is a man of his word. We will see later that to him, quote, hateful to me as the gates of Hades is that man who hides one thing in his mind but says another, end quote. These are Achilles' true, raw feelings, and are the driving force behind the entire poem. After this heated exchange, we are introduced to a new, important character, that of old Nestor. Nestor receives great characterization throughout the story, and truly feels lifelike. Essentially, he's an old man with too many stories to tell that can go on and on, but his voice flows from his tongue more sweetly than that of honey, according to Homer. The first thing we notice about Nestor is that he is introduced at all. Achilles and Agamemnon were not formally introduced to us. We just jumped right in. But Homer dwells on Nestor for a moment as he describes his backstory, and then lets the old man ramble a bit. Homer wants to suspend the tension here between Achilles and Agamemnon. Nestor tells a story about when he was young, as old men do, and how people were much better back then, and how these people who were better listened to me, and therefore you too should listen to me. A very old man story. Nestor inserts himself between Achilles and Agamemnon, establishes ground for them to heed his advice, and then comes at them with some logic. Agamemnon, don't take the prize, the army gave that to him. Achilles, don't fight with the king, he's got the scepter from Zeus. Simple stuff. This line here attempts to reconcile the two egos with one another. Quote, And if you are the stronger man, Achilles, and the mother who bore you a goddess, yet is this one, Agamemnon, more powerful? since he rules over more men, end quote. Nestor is saying, look, Achilles is by far the best in battle, we know this, but individual strength is not everything. Agamemnon rules over more people. Nestor appeals to the source of each man's self-identified valuation, and tries to have them respect one another for the thing that makes them proud. For this reason, he says, you shouldn't fight, and you should be content knowing Agamemnon is the greatest in one regard, and you, Achilles, the greatest in another. After massaging both egos, Nestor entreats Agamemnon to relinquish Perseus. Obviously not going to work, but this passage establishes Nestor as a wise giver of sound advice. Personally, I think Nestor's a lot smarter than he lets on. 
and that he plays up the old man act to his own personal gain. We'll see how Nestor's actions directly affect the entire course of the plot in pivotal ways later on. But that's part of what makes Homer so great. We can never be sure how much of what Nestor says is a ploy, or what fraction of him is really the rambling old man, because he's real. After Nestor's treatment of the two chiefs, Agamemnon counters with a line that I've always felt was meant to be explicitly ironic and clearly demonstrates Agamemnon's hubris. He says, quote, Indeed, all these things, old sir, you rightly say, but this man wants to be above all other men. End quote. What a strange thing for Agamemnon of all people to say. If we take it at face value, it makes sense. Achilles can be viewed as a threat to Agamemnon's power over the army. But I also read it as if he thinks he has a monopoly on greatness among the Achaeans. It's these kinds of statements, explicit ones about the social hierarchy, that when said to Achilles specifically, cause the quarrel. We see later on that similar statements said to other characters have different effects, because they are not Achilles. Wow, what a rush. After the heated exchange back and forth, we finally make it to an island of narration within the great amount of characterization and dialogue we've just read. Homer doesn't use much exposition in his stories. It's very different than how our modern stories work. Remember, Homer would have been reciting this to a live audience. They didn't have the luxury of rereading a line or flipping back a few pages. This means that what is being said more or less has to happen in real time. The characters need to advance the story forward. But it's part of what makes the Iliad feel so real. The action only moves when the characters do. Agamemnon and Achilles return to their respective ships, and the two heralds are sent by Agamemnon to retrieve Perseus. When the heralds arrive, they are afraid of Achilles, which, seeing as they already know who he is, says much about his character. But Achilles has revealed himself to be reasonable before. Quote, he's not in Troy on account of Trojan spearmen, end quote. So he reassures the heralds that they are not to blame. Small things like this give Achilles his depth. And later in the poem, we learn of his compassion and practicality in other ways. This all serves to contrast with our third encounter with Achilles at the end of the story. The heralds lead Perseus away, unwillingly, Homer adds, and Achilles is left defeated. Weeping on the beach, he prays to his divine mother. And this is the first time we are introduced to Achilles' mother, the sea nymph Thetis. Thetis is a very interesting character in the story. She was forcibly married to Achilles' father, the hero Peleus, by the Olympian gods because of a prophecy that stated that the son of Thetis would be greater than his father. So, to protect his supremacy, Zeus married her off to a mortal, and so she bore a mortal son, Achilles. And when I say mortal, I mean mortal. Achilles is not invulnerable in the Iliad, and he actually gets injured one time. The myth of his heel comes from a later source, and Homer doesn't touch it at all. This is to emphasize that all of Homer's heroes are mortal. To contrast them against the gods that they so often interact with, it makes the stakes that much higher. Whenever Thetis arrives, she's usually comforting her son in a tender and loving way. She asks, what's wrong? And Achilles replies, quote, you know, why should I recount these things to you who know them all? End quote. And I like this line for several reasons. First, it deepens the sense of the bond between Achilles and Thetis as mother and son. She already knows what's wrong. Good mothers are just like that. They know, but they still ask. And secondly, this is evidence of the gods' semi-omniscience. Thetis already knows what has happened, 
You don't need to explain things to the gods. And this highlights the stark differences between Achilles and Thetis. One is a god, the other a mortal. The following speech by Achilles is full of deep emotions. This is the first time we hear Achilles admitting that he's aware of his fate, that he should live a short life. And this maybe helps the modern reader understand him a bit more. Not going to live long, so slights against him like this are comparably worse. To think about this in a more ancient Greek way, Achilles has had his honor forcibly taken from him. And despite how long he may live, this honor is the only thing heroes actually live for. Thus, either way, Achilles has a justifiable reason within his own society to be angry. But Homer says Achilles mentioned his fate for other reasons. The arrival of Thetis is always meant to contrast Achilles' mortality with her own immortality. She appears when Achilles bemoans his fate, and she does her best to comfort him and help him in whatever way she can. The two share a very tender and touching bond. But notice here, though, how when Thetis prompts Achilles to tell her what's wrong, Achilles doesn't start with the quarrel that happened that day. He begins with the sack of Thebes, where Agamemnon was given Perseus in the first place. Note that this is not the famous Thebes of Greek mythology, where Heracles and Oedipus are from, but a completely different Thebes that Homer seemingly makes up for the Iliad. This is where Achilles considers his anger to stem from, and this is an example of how the narrative changes based on the point of view of the character. For Achilles, his anger with Agamemnon began when the spoils were divided up after the sack of Thebes. But for the narrator, the story starts from the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon that just occurred. It's a subtle difference, but one that really enriches the tale. Disregarding exactly when Achilles' grievances with Agamemnon began, his main complaint is that the distribution of goods is not based on merit, but instead hierarchy. Achilles' speech here is only one example of how meaning is affected by a character's point of view in the Iliad. After Thetis agrees to her son's plea to have Zeus grant him honor among the Achaeans, she says, unfortunately, that Zeus and the other Olympians have gone to visit the Ethiopians for 12 days, but when they return, she will ask Zeus. Her departure here served to transition us from the mortal to the divine realm. In the meantime, Achilles does... Well, nothing. The armies don't clash, but Achilles instead, sitting idle by his fast-running ships, remained full of wrath. So why does Homer wait here for 12 days? That's a strange amount of time. What purpose does this serve? It's not immediately clear, but it does start to make sense when we look at the end of the poem. In the introductory episode, I mentioned how the Iliad has a chiastic structure, or a ring-like structure. Elements at the beginning of the story near the end, and vice versa. In Book 24 of the poem, Achilles drags Hector's body around the funeral mound for Patroclus for exactly 12 days. Oops, spoiler alert. But this period of 12 days has a clear purpose. Achilles is, in his mind, avenging Patroclus by outraging and disgracing the body of Hector. This 12-day period also serves a purpose in the plot by causing the gods to intervene on behalf of Hector's body. But this 12 days of sitting idle by his ships right at the beginning of the poem serves less of a practical purpose, as we're only told about Achilles' emotions during that time, and no direct consequences arise from this lapse of 12 days. Instead, its purpose seems mostly literary, and it's just meant to mirror the 12 days at the end of the poem. This is the ring structure in action. It's also meant to lengthen Achilles' absence from the group past the four days of fighting that make up the bulk of the Iliad. Breaking the conversation between Achilles and Thetis in our visit to Mount Olympus, 
is the account of the envoy of Odysseus's return of Chryseis. Chryses rejoices as he receives his daughter alive and unharmed. One important theme throughout the Iliad is the difference between gods and men, the immortality of one and the mortality of the other, and this scene, and the scene before it of Achilles and Thetis, contrasts one another in light of the god-man comparison. Thetis, though her son is alive and well, cannot help to weep when she sees him, because she knows he is to live a short life, because to Thetis, Achilles' life is but a blip. But the return of Chryseis to Chryses is a cause of celebration. Their mortality means any time spent together is special and worth cherishing. It is not viewed through a godlike lens of temporariness. That is also Thetis's literary purpose, to bring with her each time the thought of Achilles' impending death, which she doesn't actually fail to mention each time she speaks with him. Thanks, Mom. When the twelfth dawn rises, Thetis sets off to Olympus to beseech the king of the gods. She arrives to find him sitting away from the others, and she approaches him as a suppliant. That is, she clasps his knees with one hand and grasps his chin with the other. In these first few books of the Iliad, one thing Homer does is show us examples of recurring scenes throughout the story. Many times, a warrior wishes to beg for his life, so grasps the knees of his would-be slayer with one hand and his chin with the other. This pose is meant to restrict the attacker so that they have to listen to your pleas for mercy. This example of supplication between Thetis and Zeus is meant to be the first shining example, and Homer is subtly training us in the artist's supplication throughout the story. We have already seen Chryses' attempt at supplicating Agamemnon and the disastrous results of that. The next one we see is a divine supplication, perhaps the gold standard of how a suppliant should act to their benefactor. Homer will play around with this scene of supplication throughout the story in different ways, but this divine standard is important to see early on. When Thetis supplicates herself to Zeus, and we wait with bated breath expecting the king of the gods to act godly, he replies, Concerned with what his wife will say to him. I quote, This is a deadly business when you set me up to quarrel with Hera, when she will harass me with words of abuse. End quote. I attribute scenes like this to Homer's dry sense of humor. But actually, this is par for the course for the Homeric gods, who deceive, insult, fight, and do every other shameful thing to each other. And this was actually very apparent to the people who literally worship these gods. The ancient poet Xenophanes wrote, quote, Homer and Hesiod have attributed to the gods everything that men find shameful and reprehensible, stealing, adultery, and deceiving one another. End quote. But why? Why cast the gods in such a light? There's actually much to say on this topic, but I think I'll save it for another episode where I can go more in-depth. But note that this is a theme that will come up numerous times within the Iliad, because Homer wants to make sure you get it. Back on Olympus, Zeus nods his assent to Thetis' plea, and this mighty action shakes Olympus, which explains why he thinks Hera would find out. If every time he made a lasting agreement with someone, the mountain shook, people are bound to find out. Thetis departs to the ocean, and Zeus rejoins the pantheon. At once, Hera begins to play her part, accusing him of conspiring with Thetis. This scene on Olympus, while lively, is also functional for it suggests that there is opposition on Olympus to the plans of Zeus. And indeed there is. Hera and Athena want nothing more than the immediate destruction of Troy, and will do many tricky things to bring it about. But the other function of this scene is that it enables the interruption of the story between the quarrel and the deaths of Patroclus and Hector. Delaying the action in this way is a very important role for the gods in the story. This Olympian quarrel 
is clearly meant to parallel the earthly one, with Zeus playing the part of Agamemnon, Hera that of Achilles, and Hephaestus that of Nestor. But the difference in them lies in the hierarchy of heaven, where Zeus has absolute, unquestionable authority. While this scene in heaven is much more deadly, it is light-hearted, amusing, and of nearly zero importance to the gods themselves. And this is the difference between gods and men. Mortality instills grave importance to things. Without it, the gods have little reason to be angry. And thus the book closed with Hephaestus consoling his mother, asking her to be reasonable with Zeus for the sake of all the gods, reminding her of the time he defended her and was thrown from Olympus by Zeus, leading to his lameness. And if I may pause for a quick mythological digression, and I may, I'd like to touch on a theory for why the Greeks had a lame god. When you think about it, how could you have a god that doesn't walk? The Greek gods are immortal, can shapeshift, control the weather, seemingly teleport, and are generally superhuman in nature. So why the heck is one of them lame? The reason for this is that Hephaestus' lameness may reflect the reality of Bronze Age smiths in Greece. While the Mediterranean is full of sources of copper, it is deficient in tin, the other metal in bronze that Homer loves so much. Since copper is far too soft to make weapons out of, ancient Bronze Age smiths would harden their copper with arsenic to make arsenical bronze. And if you know anything about arsenic, you know to stay far away from it in any form. But ancient Bronze Age smiths had no such knowledge of toxicology, and so used the arsenic to harden their copper weapons. Unfortunately, arsenic poisoning leads to a condition called peripheral neuropathy, which can result in lameness. Thus it is thought that Hephaestus' lameness reflects the realities of bronze smithing in ancient Greece. But when the Iron Age came about and people stopped requiring bronze as much, the memory of lame bronze smiths was forgotten, and new myths were needed to explain Hephaestus' lameness. In other words, being thrown off of Mount Olympus. It's just such a juicy tidbit of mythology that I couldn't help but share it. Anyways, back to the text. Hera accepts her son's advice, and Hephaestus begins to serve the gods their wine, which causes raucous laughter at his expense as they watch him bustle about the room on his crippled legs. The scene dissolves harmlessly, and after the feasting comes rest, mirroring again the feast scenes on earth. This scene reveals another key Homeric attribute, that which the classical scholar E.T. Owens describes, what is functional pleases, and what pleases is functional. Homer uses the scene to both bring the book to a close and to compare and contrast the affairs of gods and men. And this is one of my favorite Homeric skills, and a source of so many fascinating connections. It's part of the reason that this story is so good. Everywhere you look, you'll find art intertwined with story. Before I wrap up this episode, I'd like to review some of the new vocabulary we've just learned. Specifically, the concepts of geras and kleos, plus a new term, time. The story thus far has been a tangled mix of fighting over slave girls, frying, promises of glory, and generally poor manners. This shouldn't be too surprising, though, given that the world of the story is a bit older than our own, so their customs are slightly different than ours. Thus, their values, motivations, outlooks, and opinions are all completely alien to us today. But the events of Book 1 can be much better understood through the framework of Geros, Time, and Kleos. To review, Geros means prize or booty, but also has a dimension of honor to it. Generally, it's any item of distinction conferred on a warrior by his peers or won in battle. Like I mentioned before, Geros is part of the zero-sum game 
You can only get Garros by taking it from someone else, usually an enemy, or if someone bestows it on you as a gift. Time, on the other hand, is the external manifestation of your honor. It is the respect and social status you command within the group. Homeric warriors' honor is not some internal feeling where they know they deserve such and such treatment. No, in the world of the Iliad, all that matters is the external. Time is the opinion of others, the honor they show you because of the Garros you have and the great deeds you did to earn it. Time and Garros are intimately linked. For example, in Book 2, we'll read about the scepter of Agamemnon, which was given to his grandfather Pelops by Zeus. Agamemnon did nothing to earn such an item. He didn't kill a monster or perform a great deed to procure it. Yet because he has it, his teammate is increased greatly. Thus we can see how the mere possession of Garros increases one's teammate despite how they came to get it. The seizure of Briseis from Achilles then takes on a new light. It doesn't matter how Agamemnon gets a new prize, it's the fact that he has one again that is important. And such is the world of the Iliad. Kleos, on the other hand, is not something that a warrior enjoys while still alive. Conceptually, Kleos is everlasting fame or glory, and in a way a form of immortality. Crucially, though, the only immortality available to a Homeric hero. When a hero dies, their Garros and Time is transformed into Kleos. The renown they had while alive is immortalized after they die. Achilles, painfully aware of his short life, chooses Kleos as his consolation prize and his reason for existence. Thus, when Agamemnon takes Briseis from him, he's effectively shown that his Kleos can be cut off by means that are not under Achilles' control. The futility that Achilles feels in the face of this injustice is explored in the ninth book of the Iliad, where we meet him again. Book nine is my absolute favorite book of the poem, so don't worry, we'll be spending a lot of time there dissecting its contents and comparing them back to book one. But between then and now, I've got a lot of episodes to write. Well, that's book one. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I always do. Next episode, we'll cover book two, obviously, and listen to a long catalog of ships, as well as be introduced to the Trojans and company. Book two is one of the peculiarities of the Iliad, and a stumbling block for most first-time readers. But I'll show you some secrets hidden within. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, or you can follow me on Substack to get all the episodes for free, and anything else interesting I find on the Homeric epics. Until then, erostai akustoi philoi. Philoi.